So this morning, uh, we are privileged to have guest speaker uh, uh, Bill Nelson. Bill is the um, uh, director of InterVarsity's International Student Fellowship uh, down in, uh, in Johns Hopkins in the city. Um, and uh, Bill and I probably had a conversation about um, what he was going to talk about today, maybe back, uh, or th that he was going to talk on Father's Day, uh, probably back Thanksgiving, Christmas, somewhere around there. And then, you know, we kind of uh, waited to see what specific thing that he was going to discuss um, as we went through the spring and into the summer. Um, and Bill called me recently and he, and he said, well, I'd, I'd like to talk about the topic of racial reconciliation, racial justice. Um, and I think that uh, we have an opportunity this morning to, to hear from someone whose heart is centered on the international community, so centered on multicultural community because that's what the church looks like, right? It looks like the church is one um, from all different nations, all different tribes coming together uh, around the Lord's table, around the cross, because the cross is a, the, the ground on the cross is a level uh, field. Um, so I'm just so grateful for, for him that he's going to uh, come and, and, and share with us. Um, and uh, would you uh, clap or, or smile or, or whatever uh, as Bill comes. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Um, good morning, New Hope Community Church, and happy Father's Day again to you. Um, I think we have a picture of my own family. I'm still getting used to this video streaming thing. Um, but up here, and we have three kids. Uh, my oldest is 22, Tim, and Daniel, 20, uh, Sarah, 18, my wife, Michelle. And uh, we're looking forward to celebrating, uh, as many of you are, Father's Day today as well. And uh, I just echoed um, Joe's, uh, Pastor Joe's thoughts that for not all of us experience Father's Day in the same way. And uh, our hope uh, it always is in God, our Heavenly Father. Um, he's a father to the fatherless, and uh, we celebrate Him as our uh, unending, loving, Heavenly Father. And uh, I thank you so much. It, it, it's an honor, it's a privilege to be part of this service here today. And, you know, I've had a partnership with New Hope Community Church for quite some time. Uh, my wife and I, we came to Baltimore in 1997. We didn't have kids then. And, uh, um, we came to Hopkins, uh, to Baltimore, and we've been here the last 23 years. And for much of that time, you all have been a key partner in our ministry, uh, uh, financially in support and encouragement and prayer. And we are very, very grateful for your support and your prayers and all that you do. Uh, and we look forward to continuing that partnership as well. So I, I want to say thank you. And uh, I, I want to say a word too, um, just, just a, a, as Joe said, my heart, you know, why I'm sharing about some of these issues. And, and uh, I, I want to first of all acknowledge some of the hurt and the pain as a white majority person. I, I realize that there are parts of this that no matter how hard I try, I can't really understand. Uh, it, I cannot fully get inside the shoes of somebody who's an ethnic minority who suffered uh, and the pain, uh, the, the trauma of what's going on. And so, you know, I, I come speaking on this topic with a measure of humility, but, but I, I also, it, I, I come as someone who's wrestled with these issues. And, and I'll share a little bit about that journey uh, very quickly. When we moved in 1997 to Baltimore, 
we, we lived in, in, a, in a nice five-room house. It was, it was walking distance to campus, walking distance to our students. And uh, if in my house, it's called Oakenshaw, if you walked out my block, my back door, two blocks, you were in Waverly. And everybody in Waverly was black. And the houses were fifty to $100,000 if they weren't boarded up. And then if you walked out my front door three more blocks, you were in Guilford. And Guilford was all white. Uh, and the houses were half million to a million dollars. And, and for seven years that we lived there, I, I just kept saying, why the divide? Why is it so divided? I tried to understand this. I talked to inner city pastors, people on the front lines. I tried to learn, let them mentor me, let them disciple me. I searched the scriptures, what does God say about issues of race and racial justice? And, and, and I was uh, gifted to be part of InterVarsity as well. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship has historically given attention to these issues of race and racial justice. And I continue this journey now, and, and I'm a learner. I, I don't come to you with all the answers, but I, I come at least in some measure as God's servant is someone who's wrestled with these issues, especially as a white majority person uh, with people. I've listened to stories. I've tried to listen to God in the scriptures. And it's from that basis that I'm privileged to hear, share some of that journey here with you this morning. And, and, and I, I just want to say I, I, I'm delighted. I, I'm delighted that the church is willing to touch on some hard issues. These are hard issues to talk about. To discuss and we're at all of us many of us are at different places uh, when we talk about these issues and uh, and the tension the rhetoric uh, that you hear especially the political rhetoric the media uh, it's just added a lot of noise and confusion I want to thank you all as a church for being willing to, to risk to talk about some of these hard things as well and uh, uh, and just just again thank you for that opportunity uh, to wrestle with me on these issues. What we're gonna talk about today is this, what, what is our role as a church? What is our place as the people of blessing, people blessed by God? How can we in turn uh, bless other people with the blessing we've received, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, and how can we be God's agents of blessing? How can we allies, God's allies, to engage in issues of racial justice. Those are the questions that we're gonna explore here this morning. Uh, and uh, some of it, we're gonna talk about the history, some of the events of the past uh, several weeks, and, and we've witnessed multiple events. Uh, we've witnessed uh, two white men in a truck tailing somebody, a person of color in a truck, and they just thought it was their place to apprehend him. And, and to fire two bullets at him. We've seen uh, a, a white woman, and she uh, is threatening to falsely accuse a black man in a park to the police. And we've seen the knee on the neck of George Floyd, which we're most familiar with. And, and uh, what's come of all of that is the largest mass protest in 50 years in, in, uh, in our nation. And it's protests that are going global as well. And, and so, as a people of God confronted with these realities, the questions we're exploring is how do we engage? 
invite you just to pray here for a minute and then we'll continue. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, are the God of this city, uh, that you're the God of the nations, that you're our God. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts as we talk about the scriptures and as we wrestle with these issues. Help us to see, help us to hear, help us to understand, we pray. Amen. Well, as I shared with you, you know, some, some of the studies, Scripture speaks a lot about racial issues. One of my favorite, it's one of the most well-known parables. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan that speaks very directly to the issues of racial justice. And really, at its heart, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's about a, a, a religious people that, that, that don't engage, that it's about a man who's trying to justify treating some people as less as those created in the image and likeness of God. And so he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him, you know, the law. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor yourself. Uh, the question was false. Uh, we don't inherit, uh, it, it, we inherit, what must I do? The question is, Salvation is a, eternal life is a free gift. We don't do anything. We receive God's free gift. But, so the lawyer is self-righteous. He's trying to earn his way. So he asks, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus gave the uh, famous parable. I, I know many of us are familiar with it, but it's, it's about two religious people. And they see somebody that's wounded, and, and it's too risky to get involved. So they pass by on the other side of the road. But then we have the despised Samaritan. And this despised Samaritan walks over. He sees. And then he begins to feel compassion. And then he engages. He engages his, his self. He loads the man on his donkey. He, he takes some risks. He goes into a Jewish territory. If you're a Samaritan man, with a wounded Jewish man in your possession and you're in Jewish territory, that's a risky move because people are going to assume that you're the one that took him down. But he takes this wounded man to the end and then he cares. He gives the innkeeper his credit card. He's there for the duration. If there's any additional cost, discharge it to my card. And so what he does is he sees, the Samaritan sees, he feels compassion. He gets some skin in the game and he engages. He risks, he gives himself, he gives of his resources to engage. And, and we see God's heart for racial justice throughout the scriptures. That's just one of many. And we're gonna talk about more scripture, but first, in the, and we're gonna do that in the context of understanding some of the history, context for the events of the last few weeks and why that sparked these mass protests, why this is such an issue. We're going to do a flyby of some eras. We're going to talk about the era of slavery, uh, the, the, the era of Jim Crow, and down to our current era, era, which is the era of mass incarceration. And we're going to talk about what God was doing through those different periods. And we start with the era of slavery, we're going to start here in Baltimore with a man named Frederick Douglass. He taught himself to read. He was a slave. He was a Christian. And uh, in, 19, in 1838, 
he took a train out of here from Baltimore. He, he had forged documents, armed with those, he makes his way to the free country. Twelve years later, the Fugitive Slave Act is passed. Now, what the Fugitive Slave Act does is this. It says that if you're in the North and you know somebody's a runaway slave, if they've escaped, it's your duty to return that slave back to its master. That's your duty. And uh, it gave legal cover for slave masters in the South to go across the Mason-Dixon line to run after runaway slaves. Now, there was an abolition movement in the North, and they invited Frederick Douglass to share. And uh, he, the title of his speech is around the 4th of July. He says, what is a slave to the 4th of July? And uh, he, in that speech, it's a very famous speech, he recounts his experiences here in Baltimore growing up, the slave market, the, the bloody feet, the rattling of chains, uh, the flesh being torn off of a woman through the slave whip in her anguished cries, uh, of the mother holding her infant child and her tears are falling down on that child as she stands in line with other African men and women who are herded like cattle to be sold to the highest bidder. And, and he just recounts that experience and then he says, I, I must confess, I, I, I'm baffled. I'm troubled. I don't understand this. And he says, 20 years ago, the church, the Christian church in England, they were, William Wilberforce, others, they were leaders in the abolition movement. But, but what he said is, here the church is largely silent. Why aren't they speaking out? And, and he was troubled. He didn't understand that. And, and, and then, you know, he began preaching and sharing what he felt in his heart the state of the church was in their silence. And he used a passage, the passage he used was Isaiah 1. And in Isaiah 1, uh, uh, the Lord is telling his people why they are being taken into captivity. He tells them why uh, that they are in a crisis. And what he says to them is this, he says, he, he, he begins by comparing them and their people to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, I think it's in the spirit of Ezekiel, who also is preaching during the same, and prophesying during the same period of time. In Ezekiel 16, 49, it, it says that God's people had become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were arrogant. They were prideful. Uh, they were overfed, unconcerned. They did not come to the aid of the poor and the needy. And to Frederick Douglass' mind, the silence of the church, it put them in that same category as the people under God's judgment. And, and he continues in his message and, and basically says, look, your worship is empty. Uh, because you're, you're lifting up hands to the Lord in prayer, but your hands are covered with blood. And then Isaiah gives this charge, and this is Isaiah 117. We have a slide on this. He says, Learn to do good, 
Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And uh, that's God's call for us as a church now, at this time in the midst uh, of oppression. His call is for us to engage. We can't be silent. We can't be passive. Uh, we can't be indifferent. Uh, we can't say that's somebody else's problem. God has called, empowered, and commissioned the church towards engagement. And we're going to return to that theme in, in just a few moments. I'm going to continue this flyby history, though. Um, what happened, this is, this is 1852. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln, uh, in his second inaugural address, he spoke about the Civil War. And he, like Frederick Douglass, like Isaiah, uh, said that believe this was God's judgment on us as a nation. It was God's judgment on the South because they were the oppressors, but it was also God's judgment on the North for their complicity, for enabling uh, this brutality, uh, for aiding and abetting this violence. And so he saw it, Abraham Lincoln, in the same way as well. And we went through uh, the Civil War. There are more deaths in the Civil War than all the wars since combined. And, and uh, after the Civil War in 1865, the 13th Amendment was passed outlawing and abolishing slavery. But what happened then is that the 13th Amendment did not abolish oppression. The 13th Amendment did not abolish racial injustice and the violence. Uh, there, um, we just seen toxic stereotypes of people of color emerging. We saw the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, which was kind of seen, especially in the South, as, as, as a heroic effort to preserve the American way, uh, to preserve white supremacy. And we saw the abuses in segregation, in separation, uh, Jim Crow laws, you know, separate drinking fountains, separate restaurants, separate boarding stations within trains, and just separate, separate, separate. And it is to that separation that God raised up another leader among his people, Martin Luther King. And we go to 1863 to Birmingham, Alabama, and it's the last time that we've seen protests then, uh, uh, 50 years ago, uh, on the scale that we see them now. And there we see him and his people marching, protesting peacefully. And we see the, that police turn attack dogs on them. Uh, uh, they turn their fire hoses on the people. And, and uh, they arrest the people. Martin Luther King is arrested. Many of his followers are arrested. Children are arrested. And the next day after Martin Luther King is arrested, he's in prison, uh, the, the, there's an, a big write-up in the paper from eight clergy. And they accuse Martin Luther King of being, among other things, an outside agitator. And uh, the next day, you know, Martin Luther King, he, he learns of this. 
and he starts writing. He, he writes on margins of newspapers and paper towels and legal pads that were smuggled into him to his prison. And they smuggle these papers back out and what emerges eventually is what is known as the letters from the Birmingham jail. And uh, it, it's there that, that um, Martin Luther King just pours out his heart and his anguish. And, and he says, you know, I, I, really, I really thought when I first came here a couple of years ago and got involved, the church would be our allies, that they would be on our side. And, and he just is, is so disappointed that many have been silent or, or some have, have even been his outright opponents. And, and, and then he famously laments, you know, that, 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 that he's almost come to the regrettable conclusion uh, that the, the greatest obstacle in, in this fight for racial justice it isn't KKK, it isn't the white supremacist, it's the white moderate who prefers this negative peace, which is the absence of tension, rather than this positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And, and he writes, you know, to those that, that say that, that I'm an outside agitator, he says to this, that, that I'm here in Birmingham, Alabama because injustice is here. And he says, and, and uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And then we move uh, to 1865, Lyndon Johnson, the Civil Rights, 1864, five, I can't remember, the Civil Rights Act, which um, outlawed segregation. But the Civil Rights Act, it did not outlaw uh, racial injustice. It did not outlaw oppression. Because what came out from there is a new form of oppression. It's more hidden. You can't really see it. It's, it's uh, behind bars and barbed wires and fences. But it's the era of mass incarceration. Uh, it began, many believe, with Nixon. This mantra, this campaign, law and order, continued by Ronald Reagan's war on drugs, Bill Clinton's heavy hand three strikes are out. And today in America, we have about 5% of the world's population, but about 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Uh, and a many six to one ratio at least of blacks to whites that are behind bars. In Maryland today, we have the highest percentage of black people behind bars than any state in the nation. 30% of blacks in Maryland, uh, they're 30% of the population. However, blacks comprise 70% of those that are behind bars. It's the highest percentage in the nation. It's predicted today that one in 17 white boys will end up in prison, one in six Latinos boys, and one in three black boys will end up in prison. Now, some of the pushback on that might sound like this, like, you know, just to make it real simple, if you do the crime, you do the time. Um, but I want to suggest that's not, not the way it works. Here's very often how this system works. 
It's, it's the, the boy, um, the man matches an identity in a crime, high crime rate, he's apprehended, he's arrested uh, because he fits the description of the suspect. And he's there, um, he can't post bails, usually you know, up to $10,000 or more. And so he has to stay there in prison waiting his trial. Now, that trial can take days, it can take weeks, it can take months or even years, but he has to wait there for that trial to come. Uh, it, it often there's continuance after continuance and delay. Now, he doesn't have money to hire a lawyer, so it's often a public defender. But that public defender has this huge caseload, and so he comes to uh, the person that's awaiting his trial and he says, look, look, you know, he's only had maybe as many as 10, 15 minutes, an hour tops maybe sometimes to review the case. And he says, look, I'm trying to cut you a deal and, and uh, a plea bargain. 95% of criminal cases never go to trial. They're settled by a plea bargain. And so here's the deal. He says, look, uh, you can get, I can get you probation. I can get you less time. Um, uh, if you just plead no contest, which is essentially pleading no, not guilty. Uh, and, and if you don't plead not guilty, you know, if you want to plead innocent, look, you may be exonerated, maybe. Uh, I don't know when that exoneration will happen, but you're going to face the prospect of prison time or more prison time, maybe a lifetime in prison. And so you have a choice to make right now. But we have to ask, what, what kind of choice is that? You know, if he pleads no contest, he has a criminal record. And then what's he going to do? Where's he going to find a job? How's he going to find housing? Like, like, and then if he pleads innocent, like it's taking a big risk with a heavy-handed prosecutor against a public defender. And his public defender doesn't really even have time to defend him. And so the system is broken. The system is fallen. And in that brokenness, in that fallenness, we have to ask the question, what is our role as the people of God engage issues of injustice and oppression? What is our place as the people of blessing? What, what does God call from us? What does he want to do? Can we make any difference in this kind of brokenness and oppression? And, 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 and I, uh, I, I want to direct my thoughts in the remaining time here um, to those questions and I'm directing more to the white majority culture. I realize there's a multi-ethnic group that, that's preaching, but I just want to have a few words, if I may, with us that are a white majority culture. I know from experience, I, I have advocated for people uh, in courts. I've been in lawyer meetings. I've been to Annapolis. And I can tell you uh, on the basis of what people tell me, people of color, my presence as a white person makes a difference. Just the fact that I am white alone and I extend that white privilege, it makes a difference in how they are heard. And, uh, and that is a way we can, as white majorities, leverage our white privilege, our position, to make a difference in issues of justice. Uh, but that, that all begins by seeing. We have to see it first.
And, and uh, for that reason, uh, to understand, to see some of these issues and problems that I, I've talked to you today, these are things that, that I learned just by asking questions. And we begin by seeing, by developing relationships, being intentional about engaging with people of color, and then saying, look, can you help me understand? Let me see this from your perspective, from your lens. And, and, and uh, we can do that, you know, friends at work, if you're into social media, send friend requests, look at their posts, engage, to tell me, help me understand. It begins by not passing by, walking on the other side of the road, but actually seeing what is going on and what is happening. And then leveraging ourselves, our white privilege, leveraging our resources. Uh, many of us, our credit card limits are quite higher, and, and we, we have the ability to contribute our, our financial resources as well. And so there are many, many other opportunities, and, and I, I'm planning to follow this up and send you some resources. If you're a reader, there are books on these kinds of issues. If you like watching films, there are films and documentaries that can go into much more detail than we have time this morning about issues of systemic injustice, how injustice is built into the fabric and, and to the networks of our very society, not only the legal system, the educational, the healthcare, it's across the board. And we begin to see, we begin to understand. But I want to say something else, and this is for all of us now, is that fighting oppression, when you fight against injustice, this is a battle. It's a spiritual warfare. And we need God, we need Him even more. Because there are demonic forces, demons and angels and principalities that want to keep people under oppression. They want to keep them helpless. And, and uh, Satan fights hard in this area, in this territory. We need resources that God gives. We need the Word of God. Um, I think of Jeremiah 23, 29, I think it is. It says, God says, is my, my word like fire, declares the Lord. Fire, um, you know, fire, the word of God, when the Spirit of God is speaking to us, it, it kind of exposes the dark places in our hearts. It, it, it's fire that purifies our hearts. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. Is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. You know, think of, of a hammer that the prophets call compare the heart of stone, the stubborn hard-heartedness to the heart of flesh. The Word of God is like a hammer. It breaks apart the stony parts of our heart. We need the Word of God in all of this. Uh, in, in Hebrews 4.12 it says, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We need to allow it to penetrate our body and our soul. We need the sword to do heart surgery and to remove some of the dark, arrogant, indifferent places in our heart. We need the Word of God. We need the grace of God as well, because this is a spiritual battle, and Satan is trying to attack us always. And we need it. You know, the, the same people that Isaiah said, look, your hands are full of blood. He says to the same people, he says to us, to the sense that we are complicit, 
he says to them, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, red and scarlet, I will wash them. Let me wash them. I will wash your hands. I'm going to wash. I'm going to make them whiter than snow. You see, on this Father's Day, we have a heavenly Father who says he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He does not always accuse. We have a heavenly Father that has compassion like a father has compassion for his children. He remembers that we are but dust. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. We need to learn, lean into the word of God. We need to lean into the spirit of God. We need to lean into God's grace to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, because we're in battle. This is a spiritual battle. And we need to engage in prayer as well. And that's what we're going to do in our remaining time. Just to invite you here to join me as we pray. Um, just that God will intervene, that God will show up, that God will speak to our hearts and our minds. And so I, I invite you uh, uh, in just a moment of prayer. Uh, before we do that, I just want to add one more thing. It's Father's Day. I want to say one of the things that we as a family have really appreciated about um, this season, COVID season is we're all together immediately after the service and we talk through some of these issues and, and uh, we talk about the scriptures and we pray for each other. We use that time for prayer. And I encourage you if you have time sometime this Father's Day Talk about these issues if your kids are old enough to talk about them. Talk about those, your roommates, others in your household, um, and, and just trust and wait for the Lord to show up. And now we're going to spend some time just quietly in our prayers. And Lord, um, we lament that the knee on the neck, that, that cut off breath, and um, why does it take a, a video of a death uh, before things change? We lament the voices of those who say there's no problem here. You know, why still denial of the trauma and the shame? We lament the brokenness inside us that wants self-protection, self-justification, but not humility, not remorse, not repentance. Why is it so hard to name this and to repent? Oh God, how long will it be like this? But you are God or a God who sees. You're the God who knows. And on the cross, you could not breathe. You breathed life into us. You did not will that breath cut us off. Come and save us, Lord. Come near the brokenhearted. Deliver us. Heal us. Come and redeem. Amen.